You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG-13. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Libertarian Country is one of the fastest growing and most popular liberty-themed apparel companies in the world. This American-based company was founded by two brothers out of Baltimore who had a vision to create an online store that offers fun, unique, and controversial political clothing and accessories. This five-star company offers the hottest shirts, hoodies, hats, and so much more. So check them out today. This is an independently-owned, liberty-loving business that basically gives you the exact type of apparel and paraphernalia that you've wanted anyway. You just didn't know you wanted it now. Every purchase you make using the link in the show notes allows a small part of your purchase to come back and support the show. So go on, go grab some awesome libertarian country swag using that link in the show notes. You'll thank me later. Hey, everybody, check out the Break the Bell podcast, where we believe your voice is your most powerful weapon. For a weekly dose of our take on what's going on in the world mixed with a side of history. Find us wherever podcasts are found or on social media handle at Break the Bell Pod. And most importantly, never stop talking. Prepare yourself. You're on the run with Remzo W. Martinez. We often wait until it's too late to finally get our shit together. Yes, folks, even me, even I have sometimes tend to put things off. Oh, am I big boned? No, I just put on some weight. Oh, am I, did I actually take care of my savings? No, I went over budget. Oh, am I actually, you know, taking care of things now or am I trying to find excuses to put them off because I don't like to deal with uncomfortable situations? We live in the age of inconvenience. The age of comfort is over. And for many of us, we may have seen this for a while. But the biggest thing that uh, has been beautiful has actually been the conversations about money I've been having with many of you listening. You can go ahead and remember to, uh, you know, hang out, talk, chat, pick my brain, throw angry remarks at me at Hey Remso across social <laughs> media and at Remso on Parler at the at Remso, the only Remso there. And uh, when, it, when it comes to money, you know, th- this is one of those things where it's always been taboo. I'm pretty sure that it's still taboo for many people, but it, it's a it's a comfortable conversation I'm willing to have. And what I love about shows like this is I get to p- talk to people who are smarter than me. One of those people today is Harrison Dunn. He's an asset manager 
and financial advisor based out of Erie, Pennsylvania. Over the course of the last decade, he has been responsible for managing over $15 million in assets. In addition to his asset management, he is involved heavily in local politics and serves on several nonprofit boards. Harrison Dunn, it's a pleasure to have you on today. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So I, I, I have been on a journey myself, and that's really what helped propel me into the show that we are uh, on right now, where basically it was enough about talking about grand political theory and economic treatises and all this other bullshit. And it was more about how to actually take some independence, some power, some freedom back in our own lives. And money is one of those things that is incredibly uncomfortable to talk about, because when we're talking about money... We often see money as a direct reflection of our own worth, of our own actions. Um, And right now during this pandemic, I think it's been a a beautiful thing that people are now actually starting to take an assessment of their financial health. Uh, the, The crazy thing, and we were talking about this yesterday, getting ready for the show, and we were talking about this a little bit before and after uh you know as we were getting getting set up but uh this has been a really strange period because what we're seeing now and this has been going on since march that people are actually now starting to realize that a lot of them have been running off of borrowed credit and borrowed time uh every day i'm seeing reports about how people who make six-figure incomes are you know potentially millions of dollars in debt how people who were living paycheck to paycheck who might be very right of center who might be very free market people they don't like welfare and that type of stuff were desperately uh you know praying for a twelve hundred dollar stimulus check to come through yeah at the same time you know we're seeing consumer spending still continue to go up and to make matters even stranger and maybe in like a positive way but i think if you're now getting into savings now is probably too late for you. Um, you know, not only is consumer spending going up, but now we're seeing Americans, you know, opening savings accounts and saving money at a record rate, despite the fact that they're not getting any interest off any of that. So what, what's your, what's your assessment of how things have been going, especially, you know, coming from the viewpoint of somebody that has to really look at the numbers for a living and see how our actions directly impact the world that we have to deal with. So this has been a really interesting period, obviously, for everyone. But um, in my own personal situation, I, I remember at the start of this whole pandemic, I, I was very ill. I, I am convinced I had COVID. But I was down and out and just I, I wasn't really able to work. And I watched the financial markets basically implode, which is what I, I deal with every day. Yeah, so the, the markets imploded. And, you know, I was concerned, gee, is there a job waiting for me once this is over? I mean, everyone's terrified of, you know, losing money in the stock market. But what I found really interesting is the number of peers that I have that have become interested in investing or finding separate, you know, revenue streams has exploded. I know a lot of people um, in my personal social circle that they use their stimulus checks to open up brokerage accounts. So that's that's been a really uh, interesting reaction to me. I think it's woken up a lot of people to the fact that things aren't always stable. Bad things can happen. We sort of live in a world where everyone assumes the good guys always win. Bad things don't happen. But I think this was a great example of a situation <laughs> where bad things happen. Um, you could call it fat tail risk is, is the best way I could describe it. 
Yeah, and I mean, this is uh, th- this is one of those topics that you know, for a lot of millennials specifically, I'm only 25. Um, th- this is this is one of those strange situations because, and I don't think this is unique to the millennial demographic, but you know, we live in a culture that idolizes fame, that idolizes you know the self worship through social media. We're we're constantly trying to keep up with their friends, and I live right outside of DC. I mean, you want to talk about people that act rich, but have like no money. I see it all the time. And I mean, one of the best things that could ever happen for me was that out of college, I was just completely broke. I I was, I was broke. I probably had like a negative net worth. It was, it was terrible. And it took me having to work with my degree. And at that point I had already written a best-selling book and I'd you know, been on radio, I'd done a lot of cool shit. Here I am at the age of 23 or 24 working for minimum wage at GameStop and, you know, I just remember coming home after working like a double shift one afternoon. I, I was working between two different locations. I, I came home and I just like plopped face first on my bed. I just remember telling myself, like, I've never had to work this hard for so little money. And it was in that moment where I realized I've had so much money invested into me over the years. And this is all I'm, I'm, I'm able to do. And I mean, I was, um, you know, I think the one strange thing about the Trump jobs numbers that I think often gets overlooked by conservatives is that, you know, you had a lot of new jobs popping out um, during the Trump years. That was a good thing. But, you know, a lot of them were not necessarily the jobs that a lot of people wanted. You had a lot of part-time work. You had a lot of no. work. It's- and, you know, there no no value added jobs, you know. Yeah. So, so I mean, it was. It, yeah, I mean, they're they're nice jobs to have for a little bit, but you know, it was one of those situations where it's like I'm happy to be working because at least I'm getting paid. But at the same time, it's like shit. This is not sustainable. No. No, and that's something that I mean, especially college grads that I know. Um, you know, I live with two guys who are both still saddled with student debt. I mean, they work hard, they have good jobs, but you know, it's, it's quite a chokehold that you get put on you coming out of uh, a university system. That's partly, I I actually dropped out of NYU in large part because the tuition bill just got outrageous. You know, it's like 60, $65,000. That was just too much. It's too much. And you know, I had started working um, prior to going to college and, by halfway through, I had actually started a financial services firm and, you know, things were going really well. So I figured, you know, I'm not really going to these classes. Tuition's very high. It was just a sensible decision for me. What, why do you think the topic of money is such an uncomfortable thing for people to want to look into? Because if we want to talk about financial education, I think it's so funny that we have some of the most credentialed uh, people living in our country you know, right now, I mean, everyone and their grandma has a fucking degree, but when you look at actual like basic financial literacy, our financial literacy rates, according to DaveRamsey.com have been going down like every year since the, the mid eighties. And strangely enough, it's the zoomers, the Gen Z crowd, the children of millennials who are actually, you know, looking at other options other than college. They're actually looking at becoming more financially literate and more better off in terms of, you know, cost of living and everything compared to their parents and their grandparents. But at the same time, you still have a large number of young adults who, you know, to take that extra step to try and take some responsibility over themselves and their money, it's one of those things that they're, they're afraid to do. 
So I, I mean, money is, is a taboo thing to talk about because it's, it's a numerical way of separating yourself from others. You know, you have X dollars, the other person has Y dollars and the, there's a, an uncomfortable comparison between the two, even if you're just trying to have a, a reasonable conversation. Um, the, the, with 2008, I, I think a lot of people in the generation that you were just talking about saw their, their savings, their family savings, college funds, uh, you know, IRAs, 401ks, they saw them collapse due to pretty complicated stuff that even today I still can't wrap my head around. Um, going through that experience, I think taught a lot of people, you need to, you need to have a diversified income stream. You need to be not too focused on any specific uh, asset class and you need to be prepared for that rainy day. Yeah. And I mean, with, with 2008, especially that, that feels like it's almost like a million years ago, but it's really only 12 years ago. And between that, I mean, we had, we had giant roaring economy that popped up right after 2016. And the one criticism that the Democrats have often thrown out, despite not having really any legs to stand on in terms of why they, they're saying what they're saying, other than just, you know, basic political reasons. You know, they say, well, if the economy was so roaring, why is it that people, you know, were, were having to go ahead and go into forbearance for their homes? Or why is it they didn't have, uh, you know, at least $1,000 in savings? Why is it we had to go ahead and print everyone money so that way we could go ahead and toss them a one-time check? I don't think that second stimulus check is is gonna happen i really don't think so but it's, I don't think so, that either. was if we, if it was so roaring why is it you know we're in the situation we are now because people couldn't go to work for a couple of weeks and now we're in like month six of the 15-day quarantine and it's like there's a difference between the economy being good and the actual ability of people to be financially secure being good those are not mutually exclusive no i i think a big part of it is we live in a like what I like to call a cash flow economy. Um, as you're talking about people living overextended credit cards, the rest of it, they're living on cash flow. And it's a constant game of cash coming in to pay, cash going out to pay off credit cards. But there's no real wealth creation or growth that's taking place uh, in, in that space. So uh, I guess that's one of the things that I'm, I'm happy to see with the the COVID situation is a, a lot of Americans are starting to save. I think the idea of having a rainy day fund has crossed a lot of people's mind. I mean, the average American I might be wrong on this, but I think the average American has about $400 saved away. So when you, when you just throw the brakes on the economy, that cash flow all stops. And you know, that $400 is only going to do so much when you, you have your utility bills, you have rent, you have insurance and, and the rest. It's just, if this had been a 15 day lockdown, it would be very different. But because it got dragged out so long, I mean, people are tapped out. Yeah. And I mean, the, the scary thing, and this, this is coming from Reuters and MSNBC, you had, I think they said one third of uh, adults over the age of 35 have less than a thousand dollars in cash savings. 
And, uh, you know, we, we call it a rainy day fund, not because we're asking, you know, if there's a rainy day, we know it's going to happen. For most Americans, they, they would have to go ahead and take out a loan or go into debt if they, you know, got like a $500 uh, medical bill. Or something yeah. like that. You know, I mean, we're we live in a country where I and I, this is my one criticism of libertarians, despite me being a very you know libertarian, conservative-minded person. You know, we often yell at the government for being fiscally irresponsible, but when you look at the rate of you know credit and debt within the American consumer class, it's it's ridiculous. And I'm going, I'm pulling up some numbers right now from SmartAboutMoney.org. That's SmartAboutMoney.org. Uh, only ninety three. Three percent of millennials, so eighteen to thirty-five, right now, actually have uh, a savings account. So seven percent of millennials don't; they just save nothing. Sixty um, percent have a retirement account. Twenty-eight percent have some form of financial investment. Uh, you know, an IRA, a mutual fund, a brokerage account. Forty-four have at least a forty-four percent have at least a bachelor's degree. So what we can gain from that is that you know they're dealing with. Uh, you know, degree inflation. They probably have at least like twenty thousand dollars at minimum of debt. I think the the average number is twenty. Yeah, yeah. I mean that, that that's 000. yeah yeah. I mean it's it's ridiculous. And then you know what's odd is that forty five percent actually own the homes they live in. So we have this weird balance between wanting to increase their likelihood of having a larger income while at the same time only depending on one stream of income to only provide for their own their their basic needs so they're not saving they're barely investing they're not uh, you know paying for things in cash and more likely than not their first big uh, adult challenge upon graduating from high school is dealing with debt it, it yep. just seems it's it's insane. Well, one of the things that, you know, everything has a silver lining and the recession that we just had, I personally think it's probably over technically. Uh, but anyways, the recession that we had, even though it was caused by an external shock, it was still a recession, which means weak hands got shaken out. Uh, and that might seem a little cold, but it's the truth. You have companies have way too much debt. They've been punished. A lot of them have had to go into bankruptcy to restructure. And I think the same thing's happening with people. People are having to reevaluate their entire credit risk. Yeah. So, and, yeah. Go ahead. No, go, go on. No, go, go ahead. Please. No, there's like, there's like a delay. So every like couple of seconds, I think you're done. You're actually still talking. So I think it's something on my end. I apologize. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah. So, um, no, I mean, it's, it, it's, there's gotta be some good stuff that happens out of this. And if people can go ahead and learn to save money, if they can learn to go ahead and create multiple streams of income, that's going to be it. Because I still think many people have this idea set up by the baby boomer generation and maybe still their parents that, you know, you'll be able to work at the same job for, you know, like 20, 30 years. Yeah. The, the company man. Yeah. And, and then you'll go ahead and be able to retire in your sixties and you'll still get, you know, social security for millennials. They don't have that. I mean, I know that I have probably switched jobs, you know, in the past five years, more so than most of my friends, but I don't know anybody, you know, who's a millennial who has been able to actually stay at the same job, 
you know, for more than a couple of years before looking for other options. It seems like with millennials, one, we don't like to stay still either because we're nervous or because we're just trying to look for better opportunities. But even then it's like everyone has a side gig and everyone has a, a you know, an MLM and everyone has, you know, another way of trying to be an affiliate marketer. It seems like millennials, despite the fact that everyone can look at the basic numbers and think, oh, they're financially irresponsible and they're also financially damned because of the actions of their parents. It also seems like millennials do nothing but constantly work. I, I, no, I, I, I'm very, imp- well, I should say, I'm proud of the millennial generation for some things. There are other things that I, I'm not so proud of, but I, Again, and I, I think this goes back to what I was saying with 2008 sort of scarring people. The millennial generation is very entrepreneurial. It's very much a self-starter cohort from at least the, the perspective that I have. For, for people that just graduated maybe high school or college this year, um, and they don't really know what, what next step they should take, what, what, what would you tell people that are, you know, entering upon one of the strangest times in American history where it's like we're hiring, but we're not hiring. There are jobs, but they might not be the jobs you want. And, you know, with given the pandemic and given the, you know, the relative safety that some people have maybe in the suburbs that they don't get in the city because of all the crime waves mm-hmm. that are occurring. I mean, this seems like a time where a lot of people are probably just thinking, I just need to maybe do something part time and just stay at home and wait for things to get normal again. I, I, I think that's definitely a thing. Um, you know, I, this is just an anecdotal thing, but every, I've been in a few Ubers recently and every single one of them, we ended up having a conversation about how they're trading stocks, which I, to me is interesting. It's like, if, you know, maybe one, okay, but I've had five or six that are doing it. And it like they're day trading or they're just trying to get they, to investing? They're, they're day trading, you know, they're day trading penny stocks, that, that type of thing. But at least they're expressing interest in it. And, uh, and in addition to that, there's this, in, you know, incredible movement of, like the democratization of markets. There are so many ways to participate at this point. You know, getting a, a brokerage account or setting up a Roth IRA takes minutes in today's world with the apps. Yeah, I mean, it's it's amazing how many people I know didn't start investing until they they learned about Robinhood. And Robinhood exactly. is that, you know, Ro- Robinhood is that thing that taught me about how I should better use my money because at first I lost money. I, I think, you know, it has this like positive and negative effect. One, I see people that are day trading and it's like, listen, even professional day traders know that if you're trying to day trade, you're going to lose more money than you're ever going to make. Oh, 90% fail. It's, yeah. It's a tough, it's a tough thing. And it's one of those situations where it's like, yeah, we have the tools, but people don't have the knowledge to do it. I've, I've got some friends that I've been friends with since, uh, since high school, and I got them both on Robinhood, so we all each got some free stock out of it. I had mm-hmm. one friend who immediately lost hundreds of dollars of cash that he should not have been spending on there, essentially gambling by day trading. And he didn't yes. know about capital yes. gains tax. He didn't know about dividend stocks. He didn't know what he wanted to do with it. And then what would happen with the other guy is the moment that his, his paper value started going down, what did he do? He freaked out and he sold everything. Yeah, no, it's, I, it's this weird it's, relationship between having the ability but not having the knowledge. It's a dual-edged sword. You wouldn't let a, a lay person fly a plane. You know what I mean? Um, I, uh, 
there's a very specific example, Hertz. Uh, a lot of people got really burned trading Hertz. They saw, hey, it's a penny stock. It's really cheap, which is not really the way you value companies. But they see low prices and say, hey, this is, this is Hertz. This is a big company. A lot of people bought it, even though they were going through bankruptcy. And a lot of them got wiped out. So it's, it's a, a bit of a double-edged sword. I mean, I, I wish that these apps would focus less on gamifying the experience and more uh, focus more on educating its users how to actually go about investing, the different types of investing, the different risk strategies that you can employ. Uh, I, I think they would be doing a great service to people if they did that. Yeah, gamifying is a good way to describe it because essentially oh, it's, it's become. It yeah, yeah, I mean, did, did you hear about that guy that had a, a, on his screen when he went onto his Robinhood app? He had like a negative $75,000 balance and he didn't understand what it really meant. So the guy killed himself. He was 23 and he killed himself. No, I did not hear that. That's it, terrible. Yeah, it was horrifying. He That's thought so he thought that, and it was, it was either a glitch or something else. And it happens right around like March 12th. So right around the time of the big crash. Uh, he thought that's how much money he owed. He didn't realize that that's <laughs> really, just the value of the equity he currently holds. Correct. So he ended up seeing that thinking, oh my God, I have to pay Robin Hood $75,000 now. And he, uh, you know, he made a, a permanent decision for a short-term issue that was really just a, 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 you know, just something he didn't understand. And it's, you know, it's, it, it's funny in a way because we have all these opportunities, but like you said, we, um, you know, we, we've gamified the system so that way anyone can get into it. Um, you know, I, I do see it being more positive than negative because we're going to have outlier situations like this. I mean, it's just, we can't have one entire institution be based off one bad incident, but what well, it, makes funny, a, yeah. a, it makes a healthy ecosystem. You know, I'm a, my views have changed a little bit over the last few years, but I'm a free trade guy. I'm pretty libertarian. And the idea of more market participants makes me happy because it means the price discovery and the process of valuing companies is going to be that much more accurate. You have more people transacting, which just adds a lot of liquidity and, you know, is, is good for like the health of the market. You want to have a lot of active participants. A couple of years ago, there was a big trend called high frequency trading where algorithms literally were driving 80% of the, the daily market move totally broke the markets as far as i'm concerned so having this influx of new retail traders is i think phenomenal from a from a market perspective there was a there, there was a situation like in 2016 2017 i forgot what it was called it was basically this this out this automated system that would go ahead and basically uh do rapid foreign currency exchanges but they also included cryptocurrency and yeah. it was basically the system where people went ahead and thought that oh i'm just going to make money incredibly easily because if i go ahead and invest x amount of dollars in here because i'm basically including crypto with my forex trading you know obviously i have to make money and i think the whole thing shut down because the the algorithms themselves couldn't even move as fast as to predict you know human behavior ultimately right. between right. <laughs> crypto and foreign ex foreign exchange currencies. 
the, the way they get away with it uh, in the market is kind of like it's a lot of minutia. Basically, they can jump to the front of the line on orders because their their headquarters are literally hundreds of feet from the exchanges. So literally just because of the speed of information on their on their cables, they can jump in front of people. Now, the SEC has done a lot to put them back in a box, but it was it was an unhealthy period of time. Well, uh, what what age did you actually start investing? Uh, 15. Wow. Did, did, did your parents help you out or was this something that so, you, you did you did yourself? A, a little of both. So I, I'm very fortunate. Uh, my parents both have pretty good jobs. So I, I'm coming from a, a fortunate background. Um, when I was 14, I started to notice all these white earbuds, you know, people wearing these white earbuds. I'm like, well, this is interesting. I got a Mac mini and I was like, this computer is great. How, how could not everybody be using it? So I went to my parents and asked to borrow some money. I bought Apple and then Apple happened. <laughs> and, <laughs> I mean, what else could I say? Apple happened and I was able to return the money to my parents. And that really, you know, I had been a big geek. Like I was a big tech geek prior to that, but that experience made me open my eyes. I said, Hey, this is pretty cool. You know, I can find companies I like and I can make money while doing it. So I, I kept going. I, I explored Forex. Uh, it's an interesting market. I kind of call it the wild west of asset classes just because there's not a lot of regulatory bodies over it. Um, did that for a while, then switched to equities. So, you know, individual names like Apple, IBM, those types of things. Yeah. And then ultimately, I ended up trading futures. And that's what I do today. That is a, that's crazy. I was not doing that 15. And, you know, <laughs> the one thing that I've, I've spoken about many times on my show is that I'm a, I'm a long-term dividend investor and I didn't even know what dividend investing was until probably a year ago to, to be quite honest. And it's my goal. Ultimately, I want to be able to retire by the age of 40. So I'm, I'm living below my means, my, my costs to basically you know, live and everything. My, my costs are very, very minimum. And, uh, you know, I save and invest like a fucking monk. And when it came to dividend investing, you know, that was something I didn't learn about until I found something on YouTube. And obviously you have to be extremely cautious when you're going to YouTube for investment advice. But I found a few good channels that at least pointed me in the right direction. And I mean, the idea of passive income through the stock market alone is something that you do not learn in school. No, and not learn that really anywhere. No. And I I find that to be one of the biggest issues. So we were talking about kids, young, young adults coming onto these platforms. You know, I wish the platforms would explain things like dividend investing. Um, But where these guys that are coming into the platforms, where are they supposed to have any know-how from? You know, they don't, you know, a stock, a bond, maybe, you know, the two, but beyond that, what, what sophistication level do you really have? So I, I wish they would do more to sort of, I guess, reduce risk for their clients. Um, I, yeah, I just, I think that needs to happen. But yeah, it's, the, the it's one of those was, things though, where it's like, you know, and, and you mentioned this earlier, it's like, it's just so easy to download. And all people hear is you get a free stock. You don't have to pay fees. It's as easy as a swipe of a button. It's it's crazy because I, lo- I agree with you. I love how easy and how simple and how democratized the process is. But, 
you know, they're, they're kids right now that are getting involved in it. Yeah. They, they have to say they're 18 and everything else, but you have, you have the system out there that is, is, you know, it, it brings up, it brings up its own unique set of challenges. Yes, it, it does. And to think that, you know, I mean, I said that I started when I was 15, that's three years under 18. <laughs> so, you know, I found a way to do it and I, I know others find a way to do it. Um, so I, I guess part of that race to like the democratization, what we're talking about, big part of it is all the brokers have fought with each other for market share and commissions are now zero. So the transactional cost of participating isn't even there. So to a lay person, it's like, oh, I can buy this stock. It's free for me to buy this stock. It's a cool, cool company. I like their products. That's that's sort of what's happening. It's these very, very low to zero commission rates. And just one thing I wanted to add about what you're talking about with dividend investing, it would be good, I think, if if you could learn in high school, you could have like a financial literacy class, teach you about insurance, teach you about taxes, teach you about basic investing. One of the main things that needs to be driven home is compounding interest and how powerful that actually is. That is the only time and compounding interest is the only thing that will help you free yourself. It's so true. And you know, that, that it's, it's an important thing you brought up though. I, and maybe this is the conspiratorial end of me, but I genuinely don't believe that the U S government has a vested interest in teaching people how to be financially literate. I I don't disagree. (laughs) I don't think this is a left or a right issue. they, They don't want people to understand what the federal reserve is doing. People would be in the streets. <laughs> I, I I don't think you're far off. I'll be honest. Like from from what I gathered, and I, I've always been a very entrepreneurial person. I've got like I, I'm like a Jamaican. I have side gigs for my side gigs. Um, you know, my biggest thing for me has been be, become financially independent, retire early, have multiple streams of earned income, and develop passive income. Uh, you know, sources. And I do that through my dividend investing. And I've also written books. I monetize my podcast. So I'm trying to do all of that. I'm trying to set it up so that it will be healthy long term. And I'll always have some, I'll always be able to make money while I'm sleeping. It might not be a lot now, but it's, it's compounding over time if I put it in the right places. But, Correct. you know, in school, I just felt like I was told, listen, if you weren't born rich, you're not going to be rich. Just go to college, get a job, pay debt, buy shit, pay Here's taxes. the cookie cutter life. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, if you say you opened up a brokerage, IRA, whatever vehicle you want to go with, you put in, you know, 2000, 2500, and you're annualizing about 7%, which is roughly what the market returns on a yearly basis over the long term. Uh, oh, boy, I forgot my thought. <laughs> the... Uh, Wow, I'm sorry. I just totally forgot my thought. But <laughs> go, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's it's one of those things where it's like you know time and compounding interest. That that's something that we don't teach in basic finance classes. Oh, I, I feel I feel like yeah. yeah. I mean, I feel like you know, and I I didn't take a finance class in in high school, but you know, I saw the textbooks, and all they teach you how to do is 
basically balance a checkbook. That's all it is. A basic high school, you know, public education econ class is basically, it's all Keynesian economics. And for the personal finance per portion, it's understanding debt and credit. That's all it is. And that's, that's nothing. That's, that's like, yeah, that's like beginner entry level shit, but there's so much extra you need to know. That's like reading half the book. You're looking at Keynesian economics. Of course, they're talking about credit and debt, but there's a whole nother side to the economic debate, which is largely playing out in real time right now. I mean, we're giving a real test to uh, long-held economic theories about government stimulus spending. Um, just to circle back, what I was going to say is if you put 2000 into a, a brokerage account, you average about 7%. That's 19000 after 10 years when you're compounding it. And I don't think people fully appreciate just how quickly wealth can accumulate when they're doing that. I think one of the biggest intimidating factors for people is that uh, I, I, I jokingly call myself a math impaired American. Uh, let's just say I had to retake a ton of math classes in college and I'm happy that they, they stopped me at statistics. Um, but you know, you, you don't have to be a math or a finance whiz to understand how to just work within your means and set yourself up for long-term success because you know, you don't have to go ahead and like, I, I, I admit this, I'm too dumb and I'm too slow to even try day trading. So I'm not going to lose money doing that. I might as well go buy scratches. Mm -hmm. I, I, I might as well go do that. Um, whereas if like dividend investing, I mean, all you really need to understand is one, do you know the companies you're investing in? Two, are you, are you diversified well enough? And three, do you understand what the company itself does, thus giving it its reliable dividend? Or are you chasing a dividend yield? Because one of the mistakes I made very early on was I was going for very unstable companies, but I saw, oh, this is a 15% return. A 15% yield. Oh, I, I'm going to go for the places that have the highest dividend yields. Only understand that that was part of the dividend trap. Companies do that because even though they don't know whether they're going to make a profit or not, they need more investors than they're willing to lose. So ultimately, they're going to go ahead and increase their yield. Therefore, you know, no wonder the, the, the you know, individual stock price for that company that has the 15% dividend yield is like $1.25 a share. Right. Like you're, you're not even going to get anything out of it, even if you do invest well. And even at that point, you know that the dividend yield that you're seeing right now is unreliable. It could be cut. It could be frozen. And the company might, might go into negatives incredibly fast. I saw that with a lot of REITs I owned. A, a lot of uh, REITs. Real, I real mean, state. REITs got, got yeah. yeah. When, when people couldn't pay their rent, yeah. REITs got screwed. Yeah. I mean, it's only because of forbearance that they haven't all gone belly up. I mean, it's, I, I remember at the peak of things, I was really concerned that we were actually flirting with an 08 style crisis where solvency wasn't necessarily the problem, but liquidity was the problem in the sense that banks froze up just because mortgage backed securities play such a big role in their daily funding operations. So we, we, I think we really dodged a bullet with that. Um, it, I guess it's a testament to the resilience of the American form of capitalism. Yeah, I mean, you know, despite... You can be the, flexible when the time demands it. Yeah, I mean, despite all the all, all the attacks that the stock market gets, I mean, ultimately, we know two things. One, no one understands it. 
uh, freaking uh, Warren Buffett says, I don't even understand it. So when one of the richest uh, I, men, I have no idea what's going on half the time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, no, no one can game it. Nobody is smart enough to game it. And what I've always noticed is that all my friends who say that they are, they're day trading and they know how to game the system. One thing I've also noticed is that they're all poor and they all have, you know, impulsive behaviors. I'm not saying that to attack them. It's just a general statement I've seen from observations. But secondly, the, oh, it's the one very, thing that, very true though. Yeah, I mean, it's like gambling. It's it's literally just that. And then the second part is, you know, despite what anyone might say, the the best path to make stupid, easy, passive income also comes through the stock market. So, like, this isn't something that nobody has access to or only some people do. Anyone can just learn a few basic things and they can make money without having to really do much further investigating. No, and, and one component that gets missed by a lot of people, and this this just has to do with knowing a little bit more about the types of securities and what you can and can't do, but a lot of people have portfolios that are hedged in no way. Or put differently, you might have someone that works in healthcare who owns a lot of healthcare stock. And what I would say there is you have too much exposure to healthcare. If there's right. a, you know, a, a downturn in the healthcare ecosystem, you're, t- you're hitting it personally, but your stocks are also taking a hit. So it's important to think about that when you're when you're building yourself a portfolio. Absolutely, and um, you know, kind of, kind of circling back a little bit. When, when, uh, how far into your degree were you before you dropped out from NYU? Uh, I was a rising sophomore. Okay, what what was your degree that you were pursuing? I was pursuing an econ degree with a minor in political science. Oh wow! You dodged the bullet. As somebody oh, that has, totally. as somebody, as somebody that has a degree in political science, I can tell you that all it's really good for is telling people interesting stories about how governments fail people. And a mandatory reading of the Communist Manifesto, depending <laughs> on where you go to school. I, I've had to read that thing at three different schools. I, I, I got fed up with it. Yeah, no, I went to a boarding school where they they push that stuff as well. Wow. It's it's always the, much. it's always the champagne socialist that will take your money and tell you to read Karl Marx. Uh-huh. What what were what, econ- Yeah. Go ahead. Go go ahead. I was just going to say the economics department. I I just don't agree with the school of thought that they teach. So, class classroom experiences almost turned into battles with the professors. I there was one guy that I got along with. He taught uh, financial history and talks about all the different recessions, that type of thing. Did very well in that class, but micro and macroeconomics, it was a battle. I really did not get along with uh, the professor. <laughs> oh my gosh. Like I, I, I don't, like I'm one of those libertarians. I don't hate Keynes. I understand where he was coming from, uh, but you know, he he came up with a system that we basically treat as dogma right now, and to Correct. even question that is is heresy. But uh, you know, having not you know gone through school and getting those degrees, I mean, wh- wh- what were your sources of learning about this stuff? Um, so my grandfather was a bit of a businessman. He had a lot of different little things going on. Owned some real estate. He owned a car dealership. We would talk and it got me interested in, in finance. He owned a lot of bank stocks, which uh, you know, I thought, well, I'll read more about these so I can talk to my grandfather about it. And that sort of transitioned to really a self-taught path. I, uh, 
I recommend this to everyone. Uh, Reminiscence of a Stock Operator. It's the first book I read. Fantastic book about a guy named Jesse Livermore who traded back in like the 1910s and 1920s. It's a really good intro to to investing and trading. A lot of important lessons. But uh, truthfully, it's it's been self-directed. I mean, Google is a very powerful professor. <laughs> I, I tell is. people, I, mean, I tell people, I'm a proud YTU graduate, and they're like YTU, and I'm like, yeah, YouTube University. <laughs> exactly, exactly. No, there's there's a lot out there, and I've been fortunate enough to network with a fair number. You know, being in New York, I had access to a lot of different people that were very much in the financial markets, and you know, over time, built a good circle of friends that I could talk to, run ideas through, stress test ideas with. Um, yeah, that was sort of the last formal period of education I had, but by and large, it's been self-directed. What, what was the drive for that? Because I mean, everyone has, you know, different hobbies, interests, things that make them curious about the world. But when it comes to money, I, I always, you know, I think it's a societal thing. It's like, there's always got to be something different. Was the intention to become rich? Was the intention to, you know, have an ability to do something specific with that money? I mean, why, why specifically that? Honestly, money was probably one of the, the least contributing factors. Really? Um, yeah. Which I actually think is a good mindset. You know, if you don't worry about the money, you do things right, the money will follow. I've just, I've grown up with that in my mind. But uh, I, it really boils down to the fact that I like to be right. And there's no better, <laughs> <laughs> it's just really what it is. And it's, you know, there's no better battlefield of ideas and, you know, intelligent thinkers than the stock market. So to me, every day I'm competing against every other guy that's out there. I, yeah, I, I totally, I totally get where you're coming from with that. And it's been a, it's been an awkward change amongst the conversations of my friends, because I had a couple who were like, you know, all you want to do is talk about money. Now all you want to do is talk about business and how to invest and how to, how to achieve more wealth. And it's like, why? And I just tell them, it's like, listen, money is the only thing that can directly provide me one additional thing. And that's time. And my thing is, I know I'm going to die one day. And what I've learned through having to really, you know, still build myself up, it's that I, you know, money is the only thing that gives you two things. It gives you more time if you know how to use it, but also gives you more options. And I don't think anyone has ever lost anything by having more time and more options. And money is the only way to achieve that. Completely agree. I look at money as a vehicle, you know? Yes. It's, it's, it's there. Yes, it can you know improve your life in sort of superficial ways. You can have a nice car, you can whatever. But when you start accumulating real wealth, you can start doing new things and new projects. I mean, I'm I'm a pretty entrepreneurial, creative guy. I like I like delving into the creative space. And a big part of it was, hey, I want to be able to do real estate development, but I need more capital to do it. Not I'm going to trade because I want to make a bunch of money, and then I can do a development and make more. I genuinely want to do the real estate project. So that's, that's a, like, I guess at the core of how I look at money is it's, it's just a vehicle for the next thing. You just have to, to manage that vehicle and make sure it doesn't get too far ahead of you or too far behind you. Yeah. One, one habit. And I think habits, I mean, this is, this is what I, I'm, I'm a big Dave Ramsey acolyte. 
And it's like, you're either in charge of your money or your money's in charge of you. And one really expensive habit that a, that a broke millennial should not have is watches. For anyone that follows me on Instagram, you know that I'm a, I'm a wristwatch whore. Uh, you know, I, I collect watches and that's, that's not a hobby for poor people, but it was one of those things that when I finally got like a real, you know, like grown up job, uh, I, you know, I found myself making more money. And my first thought was, Oh, I could buy this watch. And eventually I just kept accumulating shit. And it was always one of those situations where it was impulse. And it got to the point where when I really began to start having to pick up my own bills, I really had to start, you know, uh, say planning long-term and not just for the next paycheck that it, it became clear to me that, you know, my habits are what's ruining me. The money is not the problem. My, my impulses and my behaviors are the problem. And, you know, the, the one thing that I think really taught me a lesson was when it's like, you know, how did I get paid yesterday? And now I don't have enough money for the rest of the month. It's like, there, there's more, there's more month at the end of the money. My, my big mindset shift after right, that right was right. I should have more, I should have more money at the end of the month. And, you know, I think it's, I think it's that which is the most uncomfortable thing for people because ultimately, you know, people say that, you know, money's the root of all evil, but ultimately I think it always just comes down to what you're doing with it. Because if you know what you're doing with it, the money is a tool. It's a vehicle. I think that was the best way to describe it. As you said, it's a vehicle. If you don't know why, then you're going to let the money dictate what your why is. That's yes. I, I completely agree with that. So what, what, what are some of your goals going forward? Because I mean, you've done so much already. What, what, what's your like HD vision for where you see yourself in like, because no one does this without having, you know, something clear in mind. So right now it's, it's the way that my company is set up. It's a family office. We have a couple investors and I, I basically call the shots. It's pretty cool. <laughs> um, so that is how it's currently set up. The problem with that is we can't take a lot of clients um, and friends just because there are certain regulatory issues with raising money from the general public. Um, you know, you have to be an accredited investor, which means you need a net worth of a couple million or you need to be bringing in like 400000 a year. I'm forgetting the exact numbers. But we're unable to take a lot of clients. So what we're doing now is building out a registered investment advisory firm, which will allow us to onboard a lot of clients. I'm very excited about that. And that will run congruent with the family office that I mentioned. And from there, I'm not sure. I, I, we've been talking about opening an insurance agency. You know, It makes sense cross-selling between, hey, we'll do your financial management why not buy insurance through us or vice versa? So that's sort of the, the five-year plan. And then it just gets more and more ambitious from, from there. Yeah. I mean, what, what you said just up front, like you actually had like an actual idea of what it is. I feel that for a lot of people, and this is really regardless of generation, I, I think unless you know, life really catches up with you, I don't, I don't think many people have an understanding of what that looks like. Uh, one of the things that, you know, always stumped me was like, you know, what's your 10 year plan? And it was always, well, just continue working. And, you know, it always came up, you know, when, when I would speak with some of my older colleagues, it's like, you know, some of them are getting ready to retire and, you know, they're, they're going to be 65 and now they're wondering whether or not they have the, the savings and the investments to do that. 
And, you know, there, there's something scary about looking long term. I don't, I don't understand why people are so afraid of that, because it's like, you know, as, as you get older, you start to really realize that time catches up with you fast. And while we might look, you know, a few months into the future, it doesn't it doesn't hurt to have goals. But I feel like people are somewhat goal avoidant. Well, it's it's um, uncertainty. Right. And that humans hate uncertainty. It it causes anxiety. It causes a lot of problems. So I think when you're talking to someone saying, hey, what's your long term plan? They're more worried about how do I get through next week and how do I get through next month? rather than, well, where do I actually want to be in 10 years? What do I want that life to look like? And how do I get there? I, uh, I, I'm curious what you have to say about this. What do you think of like some personal finance celebrities, so to speak, like, like Grant Cardone and people like that? Because like I, I, I've looked at many of like the big financial gurus online and like I, I get it that what they're selling is basically a lifestyle brand. And sometimes they give you good products with Grant Cardone. Like I liked his book, the 10 X rule. I really liked it. But at the end of the day, what, what do I know about Grant Cardone? Grant Cardone doesn't put out all these shows and all this content and constantly throw shit on your Instagram because Grant Cardone loves you and just wants everyone to be rich. He wants more people invest in Cardone capital. And in many ways, I see a lot of these individuals, they're acting no different than the devices which and the, and the tools and the capabilities like Robinhood that are causing so many other, you know, questions about, you know, wh- where does the line between responsibility and impulse end? What, do, you, do you think that people like that are doing overall a, a net positive for the general no. public? Oh, no. Okay, well, that no. gets to it. <laughs> no, I, I honestly think there are a lot of, like, I don't know what the right word is, scumbags. <laughs> it's, they're in there for like a get rich quick scheme. Um, it's actually borderline illegal to solicit the public for funds for a, for a hedge fund or however he has his vehicle set up. That's actually a pretty gray area. Yeah, like with um, Cardone, it's basically he's he, he's a he's a real estate investment trust. That's all it is. And when you actually look at you know how quote rich he is, he has a lot of assets. He doesn't actually have a lot of cash, and he's just incredibly leveraged. And the whole thing is contingent upon getting more people to go ahead and invest with him, and making sure that the people that he's renting out you know, either commercial or, uh, you know, private, uh, you know, uh, residential property to are actually paying their bills. You know, they're paying. When 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 it comes to like the trading gurus and that type of thing, you know, you're sort of buying a personality. Like, you know, they're kind of intense. They, you know, the perfect manicured beard, the, the background, it's really like a, a pressure tactic. Um, but these, these guys do blow up. I mean, it's a thing where, you know, X, X company just doesn't exist in a few years. I don't necessarily appreciate something, but I, I find it a little insulting to say, Hey, you take my 45 minute course and I'll teach you how to day trade. Cause it didn't take me 40 minutes. It took me you know, 15 years to get where I am. Well, well, even then, you know, you click on the course and the course is very basic shit you could Google. But then what they want to do is they want to sell you the upcharge package. Get into my mentorship. Yeah, get into my get get into my mentorship group. 
Well, I'll put it this way. If they were doing that well, they wouldn't be doing what they're doing with the subscription service. Wow. That's you true. would have a close you'd have a close fund and you'd be managing millions and millions. So I I look at them through a very skeptical lens. I uh I I definitely had to learn that the hard way. I, I will admit that that's the beautiful thing about YouTube and it's just like everything else. It's all like, I, if, if I've sounded pessimistic, I I'm as optimistic about certain things as I am pessimistic. And it's like with YouTube, you can learn so much from YouTube, you know, radical personal finance. I learned on YouTube. It's a guy that genuinely has an interest in people and he's not selling anything. He has a Patreon for additional content, but you know, his content is just good and he does it from the right place. But you have all these people on YouTube that are telling you, it's like, I, I, I was a college drop out and I was broke and I made a million dollars overnight doing this one thing. I'll teach yeah. you that one thing. And so those it. people are there. Yeah. I hate it. Did you ever get scammed by any of them? I bought a subscription service once when I was 17. It worked for about three days and then it blew up. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay, experiment over. Trust myself. Um, <laughs> I have to admit, I do use Twitter as a bit of like a subscription service. I follow a lot of guys that I think are very bright and that's, that's different than pushing a course. They're just talking about what they're doing intraday. So I look at them and honestly, I get, I get, you know, good ideas from those people. So I, I can't, you know, just because you're public about finance does not necessarily mean you're like a, a grifter or whatever, but you do have to to look carefully and do your due diligence on who you're listening to. Absolutely. Harrison, we're, we're running up on time. My last question is this for people that actually want to take more control over their finances and actually learn how to control their money. So their money doesn't control them. You know, what, where, where are some of the best places to start? What are some of the things that you want them to know? So that way they they're starting off in the right direction. Well, a site that I would definitely recommend is Investopedia. They have great, explanations on pretty much anything in the financial world, even sort of esoteric products. So I, I refer people to that. Um, I strongly encourage people that can to start a Roth IRA. It's it's one of the most powerful savings vehicles there is. And you know if you're if your financial situation is right, open a brokerage account, put 50 bucks aside each you know payday. And just start, you know, start exploring. You, you you won't learn until you try it. Absolutely. Harrison, if people want, you know, ask you questions, reach out, keep up with you, how could they do so? Sure thing. Uh, you can get me on Twitter. It's hdunn, D-U-N-N, number two. And I'm always happy to chat with anyone really on markets. I love it. Awesome. Harrison, it's been a blast. I'm going to totally pick your brain on things after the show. So thank you so <laughs> much for coming on. Hey, thank you very much, Ramza. I really appreciate it. Folks, there are people like Harrison and there are many other, you know, individuals in the world who they they have their act together, but it came with knowing their behaviors. It came with knowing how to fight impulses and it came with self-education. And, you know, I have a degree from a good private university, but ultimately, uh, you know, and I, I do genuinely mean this, I learned more from YouTube and I've benefited more in my professional and personal life from podcasting than I did because I'm an inherently curious person and I love to reach out and just totally ask a million questions to folks. So if this has helped you, please go ahead and get here. Leave me a five-star rating interview on iTunes. It, it costs you nothing and it's everything to me. And check me out everywhere social media-wise at Hey Remso and 
find me on Parlor at just Remso. So at Remso, at R-E-M-S-O. If you ever see Remso 2 pop up, go ahead and message them. Call them a loser. As always, this is On The Run. You're listening to another We Are Libertarians show. This is Remso Martinez. I thought I had a thought. I guess I don't. Good night. Talk to you later. Bye. Check out our other shows and more from the We Are Libertarians Network at wearelibertarians.com.